Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was recorded on January 3rd, 2019 at approximately 9.30am London time. So as always, if anything has happened in the meantime since recording, we're obviously unable to cover it. So, as always as well, we are delighted to be sponsored this year by IB Taurus and they have kindly offered all of our listeners 35% off all books from Bloomsbury.com in the Middle East and politics section of the website. So just go online and use the discount code TALKINGIBT19. That's all capitals, TALKINGIBT with the number 1919. And just use that discount code in at the checkout. All of the details are below in the in the description of this podcast, uh, wherever you are listening to it. And we will also be tweeting it all out as well from our Twitter handle at terror underscore podcast and from my own personal Twitter handle at Marson underscore JF. Also, if you or anyone you know would be interested in doing a master's in terrorism and counterterrorism studies, be sure to check out the new program that we have on offer here at Royal Holloway University of London starting in September, October 2019. It's a really great master's that we've put together. And we've actually got a launch event for that master's happening on May 15th in the Senate in Senate House in Bloomsbury, Central London. Present at that event will be uh, Lord Bernard Hogan Howe, Professor Amina Menon, uh, Professor Nicholas Hardwick, Professor Anna Gupta, Dr. Anthony Richards, myself and others uh, there to launch not only our Masters in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies, but also uh, our new Masters in Policing and Security Studies and to to promote our existing masters in social work and social work advanced practice as well. Well, in, this will include a panel discussion on uh, the the necessity of um, of interagency working within terrorism policing, etc., and include a panel on prevent specifically, looking at it from numerous different angles, from a policing point of view from a terrorism, counter-terrorism studies point of view, but also uh, from a social work point of view. So it's really worthwhile. It's a, It will be a really worthwhile event. And there will be a drinks reception afterwards, a free drinks reception. So just go to the Eventbrite link uh, underneath, uh, again, within the description of this podcast. And be sure to sign up um, where you can find out more about those programs and hear from some really excellent speakers. So hope to see you all there. And now let's have today's guest. It's my great pleasure to have on today's show Trisha Bacon. Trisha was formerly with the State Department, but is now with American University in Washington, D.C. And she has published the great book, Why Terrorist Groups Form International Alliances. And that's what we're going to be uh, focusing on uh, today's episode. We're going to be looking at uh, the research from a theoretical point of view as well as the case study examples that she has uh, has included within her great book. So Tricia, thank you so much for being on today's podcast. I'm so glad to be here, John. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Tricia, the first question I have to ask is when you open up your book, uh, on the inside you've got a great quote from Ambassador uh, Daniel Benjamin the coordinator for counterterrorism at the Department of State from 2009 to 2013. And he starts off by saying, Trisha Bacon was one of the State Department's finest 
terrorism analyst, deeply knowledgeable and sensitive to the myriad factors that condition extremist groups' behaviour. So why did you leave the State Department then? What drew you to academia if you were this successful within the State Department and this uh, respected? You're a huge loss to them, I'd say. It was a question I got a lot when I actually was leaving the State Department, um, which was a very kind question. And I think I really enjoyed my time at the State Department. It was a fantastic job. It was a great experience. I did my PhD while I was at the State Department at Georgetown University. And as I was finishing my PhD, I was sort of faced with the question, do I want to go into academia at this point and sort of explore that pathway? And um, I decided that at that point, as I finished, that I did want to do that, that I wanted to sort of look more broadly at terrorism. One of the things that happens when you're working in the intelligence community is you often get sort of dug in on narrower issues and you have to follow them very, very closely for your policymakers. But it's sometimes hard to look more broadly at the phenomenon because you become so immersed in your specific account and your specific portfolio. And I was working on this dissertation that has turned into the book And I realized that I wanted to do some of that broader research and that I wanted to also have a little bit more say over the questions that I asked and the questions that I researched. Because when you're in the intelligence community, you're very much responding to policymakers' questions. So it was a little bit of the the focus on the research and the autonomy and the ability to look at things more broadly that appealed to me. Um, And so that was why I made the change, I think. And like this is one of the great benefits of uh, for those of us who are in academia is that you can, as you say, choose the, the topics that you want to research. So why was it this topic? Why terrorist alliances? What was that attracted you to that? Interestingly, this topic very much came out of the work that I did um, as an intelligence analyst. It was when I joined the State Department in 2003, it became the focus of so much of our counterterrorism policies and our counterterrorism concerns was these alliances that al-Qaeda was forming. And, you know, it was the first, the alliance with Zarqawi's group. And then one I worked very closely on is the one I opened the book with, which is the Algerian Salafist group for preaching and combat. I was the lead analyst on that account at the time. And we were watching the negotiations between the two groups. And I was getting the question constantly, is this alliance going to come to fruition? Is the GSPC going to become an affiliate? And when I went to dive into that question, I didn't find that there was a lot of research out there within the intelligence community or outside of it that gave me indicators that I could apply in another case. A lot of times the research and the uh, analysis of this was very idiosyncratic about specific organizations, about Zarqawi as an individual or about certain characteristics of of an organization. And I wanted to see were there some factors that crossed this that I could apply in my own analysis. And what I found was, despite how important these alliances were to the threat environment that we faced, we didn't really have a handle on that. So it really grew out of a question that I faced as an intelligence analyst that caused me to sort of look at this question and dive into it and and eventually produce a book. And so starting at the very beginning, what do you exactly mean by an alliance? Because you can have... The difference, you, you, I, I could think of the difference between, say, a cooper, cooperation and an alliance. So where, what's the, what makes an alliance an alliance? I think you're right about that. And I think sometimes those two things can be conflated, both within the government and outside the government, that you can see groups cooperate. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're in an alliance yet or that they're ever going to get into an alliance. Cooperation can occur in a much lower level or ad hoc basis. 
And it's, there's been some great research on that, including um, my colleague Asaf Mogadam, who's looked at sort of the array of kinds of cooperation. But I wanted to look at these relationships that are much more stable, that are, have cooperation, but there's also an expectation amongst the partners that they're going to cooperate in the future, that they're going to coordinate in the future, that they're going to be able to turn to each other for assistance in the future. And so it's got a longer time horizon as well as the active cooperation. And in some ways, it's not that different than a lot of state alliances, not, of course, like the NATOs of the world, but a lot of the bilateral relationships the United States have are these kinds of alliances that are not necessarily very formalized, but there is this expectation. But one thing I think people often sort of inadvertently assume is that alliances mean control or alliances mean that groups operate in complete lockstep with one another. They always do what the other one wants them to do. For some reason, this standard sort of inadvertently comes into terrorist organizations when we know very well that that's not the case in other forms of alliances. And it's certainly not for terrorist groups. We see a lot of disagreement and strife and, and an unwillingness to adhere to things that the partner asks, but the relationship still sustains. So it's a much more reliable source of assistance. And I think that's why I wanted to look specifically at these kinds of relationships. Oh, it's it's really good, uh, really good point, really good reason. I suppose you could even consider for organizations not in alliances, it's, it's like individual members don't always do what the organizations say. It's the Absolutely. same as individual organizations within alliances don't always uh, go into lockstep. So why would terrorist groups form alliances? What are the reasons behind it? Well, and one of the things that I think became clear to me in this process is there's a lot of reasons actually not to form alliances. There was, particularly right after 9-11, which was the period that I went into counterterrorism in the government, there was um, a tendency to conflate groups and to sort of see them all as in alliances with one another. You know, any association with al-Qaeda sort of meant that you were an ally, and the U.S. targeted those groups accordingly. And actually, when I looked more closely at it, I found that was a very off-base assumption that, in fact, there's so many reasons not to do it because these relationships are risky, they constrain organizations, they, they, they can open them up to new kinds of threats and risks, they can increase counterterrorism pressure. There's actually many reasons not to do it. So in a way, that you have to have a need and you have to have um, something that you're trying to attain in order to make that risk worth it. And oftentimes, I think, when I went into this research, it was very common to attribute these things to common ideology. Oh, they're obviously allies or they're going to ally because they had common ideology. And that became very clear to me when I was working on the original case that I mentioned in Algeria, that they'd had a common ideology to some degree for many years. So it wasn't just the ideology. It was much more about the state of the GSPC when it engaged in these negotiations with Al-Qaeda. It was an organization that was in a weakened state and had a lot of needs to address to remain viable. And this really brought in the organizational piece that became the center of my research. So you say that they're an organization in a weakened state. Is it generally the case that all organizations, all terrorist organizations at the point of forming or trying to form an alliance are in a weakened state? They at least have a weakness that they're grappling with and that they're unable to address on their own. I think that's they, they may not be weak in the way that we sort of assess them. They have a good amount of number, uh, numbers of members or they're capable of conducting attacks, but they're struggling with some kind of organizational weakness that they can't seem to figure out how to address. So 
in the case of the GSPC or another case I look at, the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, these were organizations overall that were very weak. But there are other instances where it's a more like there are sort of endemic weaknesses within the organization that they're trying to address, even though in a lot of ways the organization is still uh, functional and is not sort of on the brink of, of um, dying off or something like that. But they still have some kind of weakness that they can't address and that is going to cause decline or that they think is going to cause decline. And do we like is there... Uh, throughout the history of terrorist organizations, do we see a history of, of terrorist alliances or is this something that is really new that's coming up? What I found when looking through it is specifically the kind of alliances that I am looking at, which is these alliances between groups that are not rivals, that are not operating sort of within the same political market, that are not competing for the same resources, that are competing for the same recruits. Those kinds of alliances between non-rivals are relatively recent. They, they, they really appeared when you see the internationalization of terrorism more broadly. Um, in the late 60s, early 70s, there's a proliferation of these kinds of international alliances. So they were much less common before that. But of course, within conflicts, um, within political markets, the relationships between rivals and sort of their fluid relations, that goes back much, much further. But the specific kind of alliances I'm looking at are, are not recent, but they're relatively more recent to that period of the, the 60s and 70s till now. Before we get into those case studies, and you've got some really fascinating case studies, some that you mentioned already, you start off the, um, the book looking at uh, a theory of alliance hubs and alliance formation. So what was it that you drew on uh, theoretically uh, to get an understanding? Uh, and what, um, what other literature were you drawing on here to, to get that understanding of international alliances? It was interesting because it was such a big topic at the time that it seemed like the kind of thing when I started the research, there would be a lot out there about it. And what I found was there wasn't. There were some some interesting and important works like by Eli Carmon. He had done something on coalitions of terrorist organizations, but there really wasn't sort of a baseline out there that I could work from. And so I then drew from a bunch of different alliance literatures. I ended up looking at the business literature and the state alliance literature. I looked a lot at social movement theory. I had to look at those sort of array of literatures and adapt them, right? Because the terrorist organizations are not, are not businesses, right? They don't operate in the same sort of environment. There's similarities, but there's also differences. So I sort of had to bring together the terrorism literature with these other alliance-based literatures and meld them together. Okay. And did you find that beneficial or tricky, uh, tricky to do? Tricky to do, I think, is the fair and uh, honest answer. And of course, this is uh, the product of ha luckily going into this research project, having a lot of experience working in the terrorism field. Um, so I was able to bring some of that, I think, to bear some of that really applied work on terrorist groups and had, of course, access to an array of people who had long time or long-time terrorism analysts and researchers that could help me sort of hash through how to think about this issue using those sources of um, literature, but also adapting them and making sure they, they resonated for this kind of organization, which is, of course, just a much different animal than a, a state or a business. Oh, definitely, definitely. And did you find it tricky, actually, uh moving from having your State Department hat on to your PhD hat on as well? Was it... Was it was 
that a difficult process to differentiate between the two modes of um, of of approach, or was there was there an easy mesh between them? Oh, I again, in full disclosure and honesty, I oh, I still find it difficult, and I found it difficult then. Um, it was most difficult when I was doing both simultaneously when I was working at the State Department, you know, 10, 11 hours, and then coming home and working on my dissertation. Then it was particularly sort of difficult to, to bring those two things together. But even now, I often feel I sort of joke amongst my colleagues that I'm a little bit of the mutt in, in the department or in the field, because I have this sort of weird dual mentality about some of these things, having worked, you know, for almost 11 years in the State Department, and then also in academia. There's there are certainly ways that they complement each other, but there's a lot of disconnects and difficulties reconciling those two different worlds too. Yeah, no, I, I can only imagine. I can only imagine. Within the book and within your, your research as a whole, you talk about uh, the hub and the satellite uh, yeah. in the alliances. Could you, for our listeners, define exactly what, may, what is the, the hub and what's the satellite here within the alliances? And this, I think, very much came out of trying to originally understand Al-Qaeda's alliance network, which was, was a main task of, of mine at the State Department at the time. And that was the realization that there, Al-Qaeda was certainly exceptional in this way. It had built a very robust alliance network, but actually it wasn't the first or only one to do so. That there were, when you looked at the alliance patterns of terrorist organizations, they weren't evenly distributed across sort of the universe of groups. Instead, they had this sort of clustering effect. And sometimes the clusters don't have an epicenter. They're, they're clusters that include several groups and they're allied with each other. But there were some really important areas where it was a network where there was one group sitting at the center of the alliances. And so those were the groups that, because they were disproportionately involved in alliances, because they were disproportionately influential in that way, I wanted to understand in particular what made them desirable partners and what was driving alliances with those groups in particular. With the idea being, of course, if you understand these cases, you can have a, a, a more disruptive effect on these relationships, which it had become clear both in the policy sphere and in the really good academic research that was coming out on this, were having really delirious effects on the threat, increasing lethality, increasing capability, these were important to understanding the threat. So that was really driven by the desire to be able to figure out the why of those relationships in particular so they could be prevented or disrupted. And what are the different benefits? And as you, as you pointed out uh, earlier on in the interview, there are huge risks to these alliances here. Um, what are the different benefits and risks that a hub would take on versus a satellite organization who's, who's forming an alliance with them? Yeah, the hubs are really opening themselves up to a lot of, of the risk, even more so than most groups, because often they are the ones who are providing the initial assistance, the initial cooperation. So they're, of course, running the risk that the other organization will not reciprocate, that they won't even survive, right? Some uh, number of terrorist organizations don't survive over the long term. So they're investing in a relationship with satellite groups that may or may not survive, especially if they're dealing and grappling with weakness. So they, they're, they're risking that the, their partners are going to defect and they're not going to get anything out of the relationship. They have to use personnel and resources to forge these relationships. And that means engaging in long-distance travel or allowing people to come to their facilities or their, their training camps or 
uh, engaging in long distance communications, all things that can very easily be intercepted and which Al-Qaeda, in fact, has grappled with, the dangers that come with coordinating with allies. So, of course, it opens them up to that. And the other thing I think that's pretty important that it does, especially in the post 9-11 environment, is these relationships with the Islamic State or Al-Qaeda, those groups are getting increasing amounts of counterterrorism pressure with the alliances they form. So this is happening both for the hubs and for the satellite groups. But I think most importantly, and this came up repeatedly, is the idea that these alliances can open groups up to infiltration. Um, security services are obviously constantly trying to infiltrate these groups, and the hubs are opening themselves up to that potential and that risk, and that could be an existential risk. So it, it is actually quite a risky proposition to undertake to engage in these kinds of relationships. And so the hubs have to be willing to sort of accept those risks and manage those risks. And in some cases, they have indeed been able to do so. And do, do you see that this risk of the risk of infiltration, is that accentuated at the point that the alliance is initially forming? Or is that uh, risk uh, as, as risky throughout the, the whole alliance? Is there a certain, certain stage of the alliance making where it might be more risky? It seems like it's particularly risky at the beginning and then when there's been significant turnover in an organization. And it, it's one of the factors that I talk about in the book, which is the whole process of building trust. I mean, a very basic part of that trust is the belief that your partner is not infiltrated, right? That their, their operationally and communications practices are secure, that their personnel are not, in fact, working for governments or security services. And that can be a very damning um, uh, accusation against one of these organizations is that they are infiltrated. And I saw several instances where alliances were not even attempted that seemed like they would be beneficial or that the groups would get a lot from one another because of that concern. So I think it's particularly prominent at the beginning, but I imagine it's always a concern. Um, and it's probably becomes more and more a concern of how do we engage in the communications without being intercepted. Because once you build that trust, there is a, probably a presumption that there isn't uh, infiltration, but it's something they always have to be on guard for within their own organizations as well. So it's it's a constant risk they have to manage. Yeah, I agree with you. And what's the practicalities of actually forming this trust? Like it's um, it's how how do they go about how how can they be sure to trust these groups and the individuals within the groups, not just the leadership but the rank and file members as well. And I think that's where hubs may have also an advantage. They're taking on more risk, but they may also have advantage because the hubs that I looked at tended to have the ability to vet partners, um, whether that was at training facilities, they had um, safe havens at least for significant periods of time. So, you know, Al-Qaeda subsequently lost most of it, but the initial period where it did. And those early cooperations and early successful cooperation and the ability to forge those personal relationships. Oftentimes there were individuals within the organizations who were almost sort of the brokers who were most responsible for managing relations. So sometimes the alliances were not necessarily sort of all the way from the leadership to the rank and file cooperation was occurring. It was happening in these sort of key nodes, which included the leadership. So it sort of managed that to trusted individuals across the two groups. And one case that I saw that was very interesting of that was between Jamaa, Islamia, and Al-Qaeda. There were three or four individuals who were really strongly responsible for managing that relationship. 
And interestingly, when they were um, either killed or detained, the relationship suffered. So it created a vulnerability as well when it's too embedded in certain individuals. But that was also, I think, a way to manage that risk and to ensure that the people that you were dealing with were people that you trusted. Yeah. And like we've got instances as well within the book where there are people who leadership members who are forcing through an alliance. I'm specifically thinking of the uh, Egyptian Islamic Jihad and AQ alliance, which was sort of forced through by Zawahiri. What effect did that have organizationally then? I think that's a, such an interesting case because when I went into researching it, I had a very different perception of it because the way it was sort of framed, especially post 9-11, was that these two very powerful organizations had allied. And it was it was part of the, the thing that made Al-Qaeda as strong as it was. It was able to ally with this very veteran Egyptian uh, organization. And when I dug into that case, the dysfunction and the problems and the internal dissension about the alliance make it such an interesting case. There was so much resistance within the Egyptian group to engaging in this alliance. There was actually quite a bit more strife between Zawahiri and bin Laden than was, was realized in the lead up to that alliance. So I think ultimately, interestingly, when it actually fully allied and fully merged, it was really only a portion of Egyptian Islamic Jihad that really fully went into that alliance and fully went into that merger. And that is very much an example of what we were talking about earlier, where a group is is really struggling to survive and engages in an alliance. And in this case, a merger is sort of a way to survive. And it highlights that dynamic, that organizational survival need that can spur these kinds of alliances. Yeah, this this whole discussion of organizational survival, it it rings true with uh, when you talk when you see in uh, chapter one specifically when you're looking at p- political organizational theory, the work of K. L. Lutz and others, um, and it, it I've applied it myself to my own research on probably the opposite of what we're we're talking about here, organizational fragmentation, um, mm-hmm. and did you see um, situations like? these alliances forming, which could have potentially led to uh, fragmentation within uh, within the organizations forming the alliance, either the hubs or the satellites. Absolutely. And that was also a finding that I didn't expect. In a lot of the cases, there was a lot of just internal dissension about the alliances, which is another sort of point to consider when when, you, when there is a tendency, probably less now, but not necessarily not at all now, to think that these alliances are um, sort of a natural thing. These are, these are clandestine, illicit, violent actors, and they just sort of gravitate towards each other, and these alliances are almost sort of a natural outcome. It's far from that. I think the internal dissension um, occurred in the Egyptian case, in the Algerian case. We saw it with al-Shabaab. There was a lot of resistance to the relationship there. And so I think that that was one of the things that the leaders had to negotiate um, because engaging in alliance often means, too, that groups are going to start pursuing a cause that isn't the one that motivated them. They're going to invest some of their resources, time, and personnel towards a different cause or a different uh, purpose, and that is very divisive. Or they're going to experience more counterterrorism pressure, which, again, a weakened organizations that can be a pretty daunting proposition. So leaders ended up being very critical to the decision to ally and their ability to persuade their organizations to agree to that. But almost all of them faced some 
some pushback and, and in some cases even some fragmentation about this yeah no it's really really uh, it really opens your eyes up to what you think would be a simple process that you think would be something that uh would be beneficial to all but seeing those risks it's something that uh that you can really learn from from this research one of the th the things as well as as you mentioned within the book and as you've mentioned already that would often think of oh well they're ideologically aligned so of course they're going to form alliances but one of the things that you deal with is the practicalities of these alliances as well and the practicalities of the issues such as the cultural problem, the cultural differences between the alliances here, between the different groups and the alliances, and the problems that can face. Do you, how, what, what did you, what did you find in relation to that? Well, there can be very basic things that make it difficult to ally, like when the group doesn't, the two groups don't speak the same primary language, right? It, it can be very those kinds of seemingly simple issues that can inhibit their ability to really cooperate and really forge these relationships. Not to mention sort of cultural norms that they may um, offend one another. And again, that gets to the trust issue that can that can degrade trust when you're when you engage with a partner who then offends you in some way or seems to um, miscommunicate because of these kinds of language differences. And, you know, I, I recount sort of the infamous story in the book of when the Red Army faction went to train at the Fatah camp in the 60s and they were this European leftist group who thought they should have mixed sex sleeping arrangements and their women's sunbathed topless and the Palestinians are sort of like, what is happening? You have to go. And it's almost comical if you can have a dark gallows sense of humor about terrorism, but it also illustrates sort of that point of like, there can be these cultural differences that can lead to rifts. And in that case, it did. Ultimately, the Germans were asked to leave the camp and the alliance didn't really go anywhere from that initial training period. It wasn't until the 70s when they linked up with the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine that they had this very fruitful alliance. And it wasn't just because of that, but it is the kind of thing that can derail what otherwise seems to be a promising relationship. You, with these examples, and this was the exact example that I was, that I was thinking about with the question, with these examples of... Red Army Faction, Fatah, and later the PFLP, a lot of people would ask, well, what can we really learn from that that's applicable today? Why did you feel that the need to, to look at these alliances as well as the more modern ones? I think that was driven by the core question that I had about these hubs, which was at the time when I was working on it, the Islamic State had not yet emerged as a, as a hub onto itself. My question was, are there commonalities over time across ideology, um, you know, across these different kind of organizational forms to these relationships? Or is Al-Qaeda really, as some people thought at the time, a distinct case, a unique case that isn't replicated elsewhere? And so this should just be uh, a work and a focus about Al-Qaeda. And I think there are some things that are particular to Al-Qaeda. There's no doubt about that. But what I wanted to see is, okay, when we look at earlier hubs, is there, are there things that drove those relationships that still apply? Because hopefully then this will help us to understand them in the future as well. And you don't just distinguish between Al-Qaeda and, uh, and these earlier groups, but also you distinguish within Al-Qaeda as well. You have a focus on Al-Qaeda pre-9-11 and a focus on Al-Qaeda post-9-11 um, within chapters four and five of your, of your book. What were the what do we see before 9/11 in relation to the building of alliances and what do we see post 9/11 for al-Qaeda as well? I thought that would be a really 
tough test of what I was proposing because there was a lot of um, a consensus, sort of a, maybe a tacit consensus post 9-11 that part of Al-Qaeda's alliance success was there were common enemies and this common ideology explanation. Oftentimes it was sort of a vague idea. It didn't wasn't necessarily fleshed out all that much. But the idea was post 9-11 there was this common threat and that was really what was driving Al-Qaeda's success in gaining these affiliates, which it was a was primarily, if not solely, a post-9-11 phenomenon, depending on how you view the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. But so what I wanted to do was say, okay, well, what was the difference in that point, pre and post-9-11? Were the alliances really being driven by different factors? And if they were, so be it. Then we would also understand from a counterterrorism perspective what our um, what our approach was doing was driving these groups together, and that would be an important insight as well. But I thought if it was really these organizational factors that I d identified, it wouldn't necessarily be that the reasons for the alliance had changed. It was what Al-Qaeda had to offer had changed. And pre-9-11, it had, of course, plenty of haven. It had camps. It had money. And it did form some alliances. But it was really the cachet and the prestige of 9-11 and what that offered that attracted different partners post 9-11 than it did pre 9-11. In fact, it attracted partners post 9-11 who may have been reluctant pre 9-11. So it was an interesting examination about what organizations needed. And I think also the other thing that occurred post 9-11 is that there was a focus on groups and a weakening of groups that hadn't been a focus before. And so in a way that did help to form these alliances. This did help instigate these alliances, those kinds of weaknesses, and Al-Qaeda became a partner that, that groups could turn to in order to get particularly this prestige kind of factor, um, which turned out to be a, uh, an important alliance driver, maybe equally as important as some of the things we traditionally think of, like the haven and the money. It, it was also a very big driver, although I assume a lot of these groups also did think they would get money <laughs> in this alliance. That was sort of the reputation. But then you see the letters between bin Laden and, and Zarqawi, or, or Zawahiri and, and Zarqawi, and it's actually Al-Qaeda asking Al-Qaeda in Iraq for money. So it, that was not, that expectation didn't necessarily come to pass. Um, what, uh, you talk there about the reluctance of some groups to form the alliance pre-9-11 and then form an alliance post-9-11. What groups are we talking about here and what... What was what were they? What evidence do we have of that reluctance and the reasons for that reluctance? I think Sarkawi's a group is probably the most interesting case. Um, in the 1990s, he wanted to keep distance from Al Qaeda. Yeah, there was some cooperation, and again, I think this gets at the distinction between cooperation and alliances. But he also wanted to to make sure he maintained sort of an arm's length and some autonomy from Al Qaeda. And of course, he was still able to keep some autonomy when he became an ally, but. That was, he was much more reluctant to engage in a more for, sort of formal partnership with al-Qaeda pre-9-11 than he was, of course, after 2003. It was Interestingly, we think of the al-Qaeda affiliate strategy as um, something sort of al-Qaeda came up with to manage relationships, especially when it was weakened post-9-11, but it was Zarqawi who proposed it originally. Um, he was the one who came to them for the alliance in 2003. So... I think that's a really interesting example in particular. Um, the GSPC, the Salafist Group for Preaching and Combat, had also sort of kept an arm's length. It was one of those groups that sort of suffered from the fallout from 9-11, with the assumption being that it was an al-Qaeda partner, it was an al-Qaeda ally, 
it was a threat in that way. But actually, the group had maintained sort of an arm's length and was a little wishy-washy about 9-11, said, had, had sort of praised it and then sort of condemned it and said it didn't know that it was al-Qaeda. And, and it, it took sort of an ambivalent stance towards 9-11. But that, of course, then changed as the group grew weaker and weaker. And in fact, personnel were much more interested in things like going to Iraq than joining the group. And it became weaker with amnesties and those kinds of things. So it was um, like those are two, I think, particularly interesting examples because they became affiliates. Right. Al Qaeda has allies that are not affiliates. But those two in particular were affiliates that allowed Al Qaeda to project strength when it was when it was weakened. And so they're probably particularly important ones. And what are the differences between an ally and an affiliate here? Well, in the case of the PFLP that I look at in the book, it only had allies, right? It didn't have this sort of affiliate approach. I think the affiliates are the ones who declare allegiance to al-Qaeda leadership. And then until recently, until relatively recently, they were also the ones who changed their name to an al-Qaeda moniker. But now that that's sort of faded more from from al-Qaeda's approach, it is this oath, this sort of religious oath of loyalty, which I think is Again, one of the differences between al-Qaeda and the PFLP is, of course, when you remove the religious component to it. And I think from an alliance sustainment standpoint, that Bayat has turned out to be helpful and important in sustaining the relationships, which I don't really talk about in the book as, as alliance sustainment. And I think it's an interesting question that deserves sort of its own examination. But I think the Bayat has been particularly reinforcing because it's such a formal thing to have to break. Um, whereas it, with the PFLP, when the relationships could sort of fade or at least downgrade for a time or even break without sort of the same repercussions. Yeah, no, I, I think that um, the su- sustaining of the relationships, sustaining of the, the affiliations and alliances is it would be a, a, a fascinating next step in the research to look at that. And it's, uh, you're right, though, it's, you can only fit so much into, into one book. So <laughs> it, that, it might be a future book project for you now, Tricia. It's, um, with, within this, though, do you, um, do you see examples where there's a narrative of alliance when you actually look at the actuality of the relationship on the ground that, and there isn't actually the practicalities of an alliance or the practicalities of this affiliation? I think that's something that a question that's arisen with some of the Islamic State affiliates, which, you know, as I say, when I wrote the book was predated that. But I think that question has been raised in that case. I think much less so with Al Qaeda, except for instances when we had these organizations sort of popping up, calling themselves Al Qaeda of whatever area and Al Qaeda never endorsed them or acknowledged them. There was some of that that went on. The group sort of tried to hang on to its, uh, its name. But Al-Qaeda and the PFLP the, were both pretty, they, they did a lot of vetting of these, these relationships and they invested a lot in managing them. So while there would be periods where the relationship may be sort of in, in a sleep mode, there wasn't a lot going on. They, they often were still at least in communication during that time or at least checking in with each other during that time. So in those two cases, they were pretty diligent about managing relationships. But I think in, in other cases, you're absolutely right. And I think the, that came up a number of times, in particular in my subsequent work I, uh, at the State Department. I worked on South Asia, and I did a lot of work on Lashkar-e-Taiba, which had conducted the Mumbai attacks 
shortly after I started working on the issue. And there was a tendency to assume that an organization like that must be allied with Al-Qaeda. It was just they're operating in the same area, they have the same ideology, and so it was often called an Al-Qaeda ally. And when I more closely examined that, I found that that was not the case. There were instances of individual cooperation, but they didn't have an alliance. In fact, there were some points of distrust between them because Lashkar was so close to the Pakistani state and is so close to the Pakistani state. So I think there is a tendency and has been a tendency in the counterterrorism sphere to define groups in their relationship to Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State. And that can lead to overemphasizing what cooperation exists and portraying it as an alliance when it doesn't actually meet that threshold. But we define our threats that way, you know? Yeah, and it's a, in a way, you've got there with the Mumbai attacks a harmonization rather than an yes. alliance or cooperation. It's, um... Exactly, exactly. And Al-Qaeda was perfectly thrilled with the Mumbai attacks. It helped them. It was consistent with their ideology and their, their targeting. But this was, Lashkar did this for its own very parochial reasons, or both organizationally and politically. So it was, um, I think, a mistake um, and it causes people to misunderstand an important group that, that is a threat in its own right to just sort of define it in relationship to Al-Qaeda. And have we seen these satellite groups who have started off with very uh, parochial, regionalized aspirations and end goals, have we seen them come closer to achieving uh, their ultimate aim or... Have we seen that with the alliance that their goal becomes that the goal of Al Qaeda becomes their goal? Uh, do do we see a change in 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 what they're aiming to achieve and in their potential to achieve what they're aiming to achieve? I think that raises a really interesting point, which is how I I do attribute these alliances in part to ideology and common enemies, but more in how they shape partner selection and they help bind partners. And I think one of the things that in the alliance sort of formation process we see is both partners make adjustments to their narratives, maybe to their attacks, to try to incorporate their partner more into their sort of agenda, if you will. And I point this out with the GSPC that Al-Qaeda had an uptick in how often it, it referenced France as one of the enemies, which was sort of a nod to the GSPC, which was now the Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb, sort of enmity towards France. And for its part, the AQIM referenced the United States more in its statements and its propaganda. Now, I don't think it has led to a wholesale adoption um, by either side. Each side still has priorities. And you see this in the Bin Laden letters, Al-Qaeda constantly trying to get its allies and its affiliates to focus more on its agenda. And its allies and affiliates sometimes saying, okay, we'll try, but... We also have this local agenda or this regional cause that has to also be our focus. So I don't think that these alliances or the affiliates mean an adoption of the hub's agenda. I think that might be one of what the things the hub is trying to accomplish, but it only gets part of that. And it has to also give part of that. It also has to recognize. And this was very apparent with the PFLP when it allied with the Japanese Red Army. The PFLP once had no concerns about Japan. That was just not on its agenda, except in this very abstract, sort of broader world revolution way. But once it allied with the Japanese Red Army, it was willing to attack Japanese targets and vice versa. So you see some of that, but it's not this wholesale adoption. 
And in terms of capability, I think that's probably one of the most important things that groups get from these relationships is improved capability. Um, they can share best practices, they can train each other, they can help each other get weapons. It, it does improve their capability. Now, in a lot of cases, still their ultimate political goal is quite far away. It's, it's, it's still maybe not enough to achieve the political objective, depending on how grandiose that objective is. But it certainly improves the organization's position, its ability to recruit, its ability to conduct attacks, those kinds of things. Pretty consistently, we see the alliances helping with that. And do we see the tactics changing or the, or the strategy changing, or is it just that it's becoming more competent? I think we sometimes see the tactics change, and sometimes that's a function of training, and sometimes it's a function of just imitation. Um, the, the GSPC adopted suicide attacks after allying with al-Qaeda, which it hadn't previously conducted. And it was never really clear if that was something al-Qaeda trained it to do or if it was just willing to adopt and imitate that target, that tactic, which, of course, was proliferating at the time. Um, so I think we do see that. In the case of uh, PFLP, it was very effective at training its partners in hostage takings, which was its specialty and sort of the tactic of the day. And we did see its, its, um, its allies get more effective or even start conducting hostage takings because of that training. So I do think we often, although not always, see change in tactics. Um, although the exact reason for it isn't always clear. This is part of the difficulty of this kind of research, right, is there's always these sort of black holes that you can't penetrate. Even, I mean, as an academic researcher and having worked in the intelligence world, that can be true there too. And you intimated earlier on about the the difference that we see now. I know, as you, as you referenced, it, this book was uh, finalized before the, the modern... Um, the modern push, uh, the modern IS um, uh, push at the moment. Um, what difference do we see with uh, with ISIS's um, alliances and with what we, what you were looking at within in your book for the majority of the time? It's a really interesting sort of next chapter of this same phenomenon. Is ISIS emerging as as a hub in its own right? And I watched that very carefully because that was the question I had for myself is, will this case be, have these same similarities to Al-Qaeda and the PFLP or has something changed? Is something in the environment or is there another way that hubs form these alliances? So for me, this was a very interesting sort of test of what I had been working on inadvertently. Um, and what I found was a lot of the things that I was looking at with Al-Qaeda and the PFLP also turned out to be the case with ISIS. It, I think in its case, oftentimes it attracted even weaker organizations. Oftentimes there were these sort of offshoots or splinters, you know, we talked about fragmentation earlier, of more established groups that wanted to sort of catapult themselves into a, a better sphere where they would be more organizationally viable. And one of the things they were willing to do was engage in this affiliation with the Islamic State which was actually requiring a fair amount of um, relinquishing of autonomy by these groups. They wanted to be able to appoint the leaders. It would send personnel there and sort of it dictated more to its allies than I think Al-Qaeda or the PFLP did. Um, but it, it did follow the same pattern in terms of what seemed to be motivating these alliances and, of course, the role of ideology and even the way to build trust, right? ISIS had a safe haven and, and territory that other groups could go to, but it was also deploying personnel to some of the places where it was courting 
affiliates in order to try to build that trust. So it was engaging in a lot of the same processes that we saw Al-Qaeda and the PFLP engage in as well. And of course, with the Islamic State, like with Al-Qaeda, the prestige factor was a huge draw. And I think that's a very interesting finding onto itself. With the PFLP, yes, association with the Palestinian cause in the 1970s was a, was a draw. It definitely had that. But with Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, the prestige factor and how much other organizations seem to seek that when they're weakened, um, especially being able to change their name accordingly, seems to be a significant draw for um, organizations that are seeking to become viable or um, to try and revitalize themselves. And how do you view the alliance that um, IS has formed with Boko Haram to look specifically? Yeah, and I think so the two exceptions to what I said was um, in terms of them being extremely weak organizations would be Egypt and, and Nigeria. But I think Boko Haram is one of the cases that gets back to what you referenced earlier, where there was a lot of questions of like whether there was actually any fire behind the smoke, whether this was really an alliance or not, or if it just was sort of posing as an alliance. And it has actually done what we talked about earlier too, which is sort of contributed to the fragmentation of the group. It's not the cause, but of course the fragmentation there and the confusion about which parts of the group are still Boko Haram or associated with the Islamic State, it's, it's created sort of a much more difficult picture to parse through. But I think that it did, it was driven by some of the same organizational factors that Boko Haram, while looking in to outside observers, of course, still is a very capable organization, was scrappling with some weaknesses. And it's, it is one of those groups like the GIA in Algeria or the Pakistani Taliban in Pakistan. Boko Haram is one of those groups that is preying on and attacking its primary constituency, which is in a lot of ways sort of an unsustainable approach. It's a very terrorizing approach. Um, and there's, of course, a lot of coercion. It's, it can do all of those things and still maintain itself as an organization, but as a political strategy is, is a, a very detrimental one. So I think it, it is an organization that has some pretty fundamental weaknesses that the Islamic State didn't fully address, but was able to help address particularly in how it portrayed itself and sort of some of its propaganda. Yeah, and it's it's one to watch. It's definitely one that uh, I'm sure a number of our listeners um, will be following cl- quite closely. Well, you've mentioned it um, throughout the, the interview, and I just wanted to finish up really with this, this question. It's how can this understanding that we've gained through your research on um, on these international terrorist alliances, how can this be used in a way to assist countering the, these organizations, the individual organizations within the alliances as well as the alliance itself? I think, oh, sorry. No problem. My dog just barked. <laughs> no problem. That's fine. It's There are three of us actually- in this interview now. I was actually sure she was going to do that earlier in the interview. No worries. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think that was the primary eye that I had towards this um, project was, it does, will my findings suggest something about being able to um, disrupt these relationships? And, in, and at, by the time I had written it, interestingly, I was hearing from a lot of people, do alliances still even matter? Is this really the sort of the key relationship? And my answer to that is, it's certainly not the only one. Like there are other, there are definitely other forms of cooperation and important dynamics. And you know, the, with 
the in some places it's not necessarily about organizations it's about cells or um, you know lone wolves who are directed or have connections elsewhere and those kinds of dynamics so I wouldn't claim that alliances are sort of the end-all be-all but I do think the Islamic State emerging as a hub has reinforced the idea that these relationships are very important to the threat environment and I think that it's interesting because it's been sort of a talking point. It's been part of the strategic discussion that these are relationships that, if broken or if prevented, leave groups more vulnerable to be defeated. It was in the 2003 counterterrorism strategy that came up. But from a counterterrorism perspective, it has not really been something that the United States or other governments have tried to do. And it's, it's not something they've really focused on disrupting. Interestingly, I think instead of that, there is a tendency to jump the gun and declare groups allies and, re and conflate them and reinforce their ties to each other by highlighting them rather than trying to divide them. And I think, the, of course, the most important thing is to go after the hubs and to go after the hubs' ability to provide these services, the um, assistance, the resources to satellite organizations. But I actually think, interestingly, the weakest link in the chain of these alliances is the trust factor. It's such a difficult thing to forge, and it's such a, in the early points, an easy thing to lose. So I think that there would be some potential to engage in disruption efforts that sow mistrust and have early cooperation not be successful in ways that would hinder trust formation. And that is probably sort of the, the lowest hanging fruit, because I don't think there's a silver bullet by any means to, um, I wish I'd come up with one, but that was de definitely not where the research led me to. But it did seem like trust was the shakiest part of the process for these organizations and could prevent alliances from forming that would have actually really benefited organizations. So I think that would be where I would recommend focusing the most efforts. And for anyone who's listened to this podcast before, and especially last season, they'll know that uh, I would definitely be in agreement about the the significant role the trust can uh, can and should play in our in our understanding of these groups and how to how to look at countering them. So finally, if you were to go back and give advice to Trisha Bacon sitting there in the State Department and trying to understand these alliances, what would be the outside of trust? What would be that that key element that you would uh, you would key piece of advice from what you've gained from doing this research? If I recall myself correctly, I think that I I did predict that the alliance would occur, but I predicted it for the wrong reasons. And I think what I didn't fully appreciate at the time was because there's so much concern about the threat, there is, there is a tendency to almost overestimate these groups at times and not recognize their weaknesses because you don't want to underestimate the kind of threat they pose. That's sort of the, um, the pressure of working in the counterterrorism environment, especially post 9-11, is you never wanted to underestimate a threat. And I think at the time, I didn't fully assess the organizational weaknesses and vulnerabilities that were driving this alliance. And I think once the alliance forms and groups gain the benefit of them, that's exactly what we see mitigated is those weaknesses. And so I think what I would have said at the time is this is an organization that's in trouble and anything that can be done to make that trouble worse for the group and to slow the alliance or hinder it or damage their ability to communicate with each other will, will pay off exponentially because the group is in this sort of weakened state. And that, while that's not 
universally true. I think in a lot of the cases I looked at, that would be very true that when we see this alliance initiation effort, it's almost like there's blood in the water, so to speak. And there would be opportunities to really engage in targeted efforts when a group is at that point to weaken them and maybe even defeat them. And so I think that's one of the things that I would say to look at and when we see sort of the initiation of an alliance effort. I think that's a really good way to finish up today's interview. Trisha, thank you so much for uh, for being the guest on today's episode of Talking Terror. For anyone who wants to read uh, further about Trisha's research, the name of her book is Why Terrorist Groups Form International Alliances, and I definitely recommend it. Uh, we only got to really touch the surface of, of what is uh, an excellent piece of research. So, Trisha, thank you so much for that. So, another really interesting discussion there with a true expert in this area. I really would encourage you all to to read Trisha Bacon's work, especially that book there, but also, um, also all the other publications that she's put out. Just to remind you, if you want to get that 35% discount from IB Taurus um, or from Bloomsbury.com in the Middle East and politics sections, be sure to use the discount code IBT19 uh, at checkout. And also be sure to sign up for our launch event at Senate House on the 15th of May for our Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies Masters, as well as our Policing and Security Studies Masters and uh, the Social Work and Social Work and Advanced Practice Masters that we offer here at Royal Holloway University of London at our central London campuses. Some really interesting uh, programs we have to offer and there'll be some really interesting speakers there. Lord Bernard Hogan Howe, Professor Amina Memon and others as well. So hope to see you all there and until then, goodbye.